Welcome to Questions That Matter. This is a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute, and I have the great privilege of being your host. My name is Randy Newman. Uh, My guest today is Ben Virgo. He's with Christian Heritage London. Uh, Ben and I met in London uh, a few weeks ago when I was there for a number of conferences. Uh, I heard from several people, oh, you're going to be in London. You've got to get in touch with Ben. You've got to go on one of his tours. And uh, my schedule was very busy, and I, I didn't know about taking a whole day or a half a day on a tour, but I thought, oh, let's give it a try. And oh my goodness, it was wonderful. It was really wonderful. Ben and I walked around London for an hour and a half, and he was just a fountain of great information about church history and what God has done in London through his sovereign hand. I got the idea Ben could have walked for 10 hours. I could have walked for an hour and a half, which is about how long we walked. (laughs) And then I said, Ben, I I need to find a a lovely London bench. Anyway, Ben Virgo, it's great to have you on Questions That Matter. Welcome. Thank you, Randy. It's lovely to see you. Well, uh, Ben, give us a little commercial at the beginning about Christian Heritage London. What do you do and what are these tours about? Well, the great opportunity that we have, Randy, is that uh, all over the world, when people are looking for an illustration for how the gospel can change the world, if you were to read say R.C. Sproul or Charles Colson or Vishal Mangalwadi or uh, Tim Keller or Ajis Fernando, when people are looking for an illustration for how the gospel can change history, they always start talking about London because they start talking about Wilberforce and Spurgeon and Whitfield and Elizabeth Fry and John Newton and John Wesley and Tyndale, Wycliffe, people who, because of the gospel, they invested themselves and they happen to have invested themselves in London. And typically throughout the week, I meet people from uh, four or five continents because the heroes of London's church history are the heroes of world history. When I speak to people about Wilberforce, I rarely find them saying, sorry, which one was he? Who was he? He was Mm. the guy who ended the slave trade. I heard a guy speaking at a a conference in, he was from Texas, and he, he was asked by his denomination, what model will you use for your church? And he said, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, 1859. See, all over the world, people are talking about these heroes. And so it's a great, it's a, it's an opportunity literally on our doorstep. We can take people on a walk through the stories of what God has done in London. And these are not just my opinion or anyone's opinion. We have dates, you know. We take people into the church building where John Newton sat down with William Wilberforce. And we can then say, 26th of July, 1833, they beat slavery as a legal trade in the British Empire. 800,000 people would become free. And it, now that mm. isn't a matter mm. of opinion, but you can say it was in this building. It was at some people just walked past out, outside thinking, oh, there's a church service going on in there. Didn't know there was a conversation which would change history. But it all mm. is based on the gospel. And so that's our great opportunity, telling stories about how the gospel has changed the world. Oh, man, thanks. That's really good. I I know I was, uh, you know, my experience in London reminded me um, this has become a very secular city. Um, I I think I was told less than 3% of Londoners are in church on a Sunday morning, a typical Sunday morning. And yet, when you just rattled off those names of the people that God has used in London, it was staggering. 
And uh, and I do have to say, when we stepped into that church and you told me this is where John uh, Newton and William Wilberforce had the conversation, I, I it was I, I, I got goosebumps and uh, that was such a great experience. But let's step back a little bit and be a little bit more general. So the question that matters is uh, about about church history. Why is church history so important for all Christians? This this isn't just a sort of a niche thing that a couple of uh, historical nerds should get into. Um, uh, I, I was convinced of this before I had that time with you, but but you certainly reinforced that. Learning and knowing more and more about church history is so crucial for our spiritual growth. Why is that? Well, C.S. Lewis says there is a moment at which time touches eternity, mm-hmm. and that moment is now. And each, if the gospel is true, it is an event that happened in a now. It happened in a in a moment in time. And people have had to come to terms with it. And if people have come, if it is a historical fact that that God came to the world, that he lived 3,000 miles from where I'm sitting here 2,000 years ago, and he came so that he could save, then that probably changed some things. And the, the exciting thing is that it changed history. It changed the experience of the world. God living among people change things. And therefore, church history is very powerful, potentially, uh, to, to, to learn from because you're essentially telling the stories of people who in other ge- generations found the Christ who you are now being invited to find in their time. And then the consequences of what happened. John Piper says, I like to read about people who finished well, because you kind of mm. get the impression mm. this is, if you, if you, it's, it's always a dodgy thing if you, if you name your child after someone still who's still alive, because uh, you don't know how they're going to end. But uh, mm-hmm. if you, the people who were, were studying in, in history, they are people who found the Christ of, of history to be enough. And we can see how they ended. Now, that's very helpful. That's a, that's a real potential encouragement. And as it happens, one of the things that we'd love to point out in on our tours through London is that history has layers. So each one of the heroes of church history had heroes. So Charles Spurgeon, one of his heroes was John Newton and John Newton's hero was George Wick, uh, was uh, George Whitfield. And so you find mm. people who looking back, this guy had a hero, this guy had a hero. It just reminds us history hasn't finished. We are still alive in this same creation. The book that God is writing is called history. Oh, well said. So, so this is so good. You know, um, not too long ago, I heard someone say, we, we tend to think of history in this linear fashion. So it moves from this date to this date to this date to this date. But another image, and, and, and that's fine, that's good, because that is kind of the way time moves on. Um, but another perspective might be more of um, uh, rings of a tree, Hmm. Um, and you know, uh, you know, when you cut down a tree, you see that there are these rings. And so something happens in an inner ring and then that starts affecting the outer ring. And then that starts affecting what comes after it. So in, instead of it being point A, point B, point C, and now we've moved on from A, that's done. Now we're in B. No, it's more like A influences and shapes B, which then becomes part of C, which influences. And again, I felt that walking around there in London. Yes. Um, what, what, what are some of your favorite stops along these yeah. tours that you do? Well, 
that's a that's a fascinating observation there's also a sense in which it could be you could almost see it as a spiral you find people coming around to it also fits the circular idea because you find people coming to the same issue and that's one of the things which really makes uh, is a powerful apologetic for the gospel it's alive uh, in the sense that someone's got it yeah have you noticed randy how you'll get a particular particular beautiful revelation as you read something in say colossians uh, and then you you pray about it and you pray about it and three four weeks later it isn't quite the same because you're alive and and you're it's a beautiful thing and now i have other challenges in my life and i'm sta- i stood on that one and now let's go on to this and the lord seems to open new things up to you now if we had just learned something once and then everything was sorted from then on well where's the beauty where's the potential and that's that's the thrilling thing we see people and the, one of the delightful things is in earlier generations so many of these heroes have written their own either their autobiographies or they've written their diaries and uh, and and uh, so therefore we can see them and the, the hilarious thing is and you mentioned wilberforce one of my great favorites and my favorite stop we've mentioned already is uh, this the church building where john newton used to be the minister and William Wilberforce came into that building. You know, it's a 200-seater. I mean, most people listening to this would go to churches of a similar size and would think, well, my church, of course, isn't very important. Yet that was what it was mm. like. It didn't feel very important. But mm. William Wilberforce's diaries have recently been published for the mm. first time. And thrillingly, as you read them, you think, wait a minute, there must be some mistake because these are my diaries. You know, he says things like, I should be so much further on than I am. And I feel like I've broken my own resolution again. And I must remember the grace of God. And I had a great sermon on Sunday and I turned to God in prayer. And you think, hang on, this is my journal. Yeah, this is my. <laughs> and you forget, Wilberforce changed the world. And you think, no, 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 mm, that's the mm. point. If you one day meet Wilberforce, the idea at that moment that he changed the world will be so ridiculous. First of all, you will see he is being lit by a light shining brighter than the sun. <laughs> Secondly, you will notice that his crown is on the floor, and that'll be because he's looking up at the lamb. You see, uh, these uh, stories, yeah. you see, yeah. they're about people who in early, early generations, they found the beautiful Jesus who any believer has found now. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I particularly, I love his story. Shall I, shall I elaborate, elaborate a little on Wilberforce there? Yeah, but, but before you do, um, let me just jump in because yeah. a, a little bit of my historic nerdiness has to kick in here. Because um, <laughs> you use the image of a spiral. I really love that. Because um, uh, when I was a fairly young Christian, I heard a speaker talking about the Christian view of history is that it does progress, it does move on, and it is moving to a culmination with the return of the Messiah. Yes. As And this is contrasted to a different view of history, which just says, we're just on a circle going around and around and around going nowhere. That's much more of a Eastern mysticism, maybe even Buddhist philosophy. The Christian view is, while there are cycles that repeat. It is not a endless circle just going nowhere. It is a spiral moving. And so our calendar year, yes, every year we celebrate Christmas, but Christmas at 2022 is going to be different than 2023. And so so that spiral moving upward, onward to 
the return of the Messiah is is a really crucial picture to have, especially when you feel like, oh, I'm 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 just not growing. I'm going nowhere. I'm just on this treadmill. Yes. Yes. No, it's not a treadmill. Um, so anyway, but yes, go elaborate some more about Wilberforce because you 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 know him well. But the point you're making there, though, if I, actually, I think it's a fascinating uh, trail you've opened up there. You see, half the time I'm giving tours in the city of London, talking about how the gospel has changed the world. The other half of the time, I'm giving tours in the British Museum. I'm uh-huh. looking at actual Bible items that are that were things that were held by Bible characters. And what's fascinating, Randy, is as you uh, having living around, for example, I, I, I walk frequently past uh, a. Uh, a slab on which a Bible character wrote something. There's a, there is the handwriting of a Bible character in, in the New British Museum. And there are bowls that very likely were held by Nehemiah. Now, when you're reading the Bible, you're reading the Old Testament, you do see promises of how the seed of Abraham will change and bless the nations. And what's fascinating is, of course, as we see in the New Testament, the seed of Abraham is, there is a seed who is Jesus. And when you are thinking constantly about uh, Old Testament type prophecies, you start seeing again and again how we are told there is going to be a blessing of the nations. And now what's interesting is, of course, you know, 2000 years after Jesus, we live in a city where there are hospitals, universities, schools, a welfare state. There are countless uh, institutions set up for the poor, which most. And you see, if you look back on all these, you find you can find dates. Christians set these things up. I mean, in in London, the hospitals are called St. Bartholomew's, which is the oldest mm. hospital in Europe, and St. Thomas's, the oldest, one of these oldest, where do they come from? They come from priories. What, what about the universities? Well, they originally were seminaries, so we can teach the ministers of the, of the gospel. The schools, why are there free schools? Because of Lord Shaftesbury, who thought there should be free schools, and he pushed and, and enabled that. And the fascinating fact is, the world in which we are living has been stamped by the gospel. And, and fascinating, the rest of the world then says, how do we know we're civilized? And that's a word that doesn't get used very much nowadays, but you tend to find it's associated with things like education and health. <laughs> mm. And mm. where did we get this excellent? See, my first degree was in classics. And if you read the, read the, world, the world as the Greeks and the Romans, that was a Nietzsche. Those guys, they made the Nazis look nice. And mm. why, so how did it change? Well. Great the sociologist Rodney Stark and the historian Tom Holland say you just can't get past the fact Christianity has changed everything. So, yes, I think that the, the cyclical thing is fascinating. But in, in that uh, spiral vision, it's changing. It's getting better. It's getting better. And there's, there's a development which is fascinating to watch, not least because the ones who flourish in it are the ones who, who cling to the one who's at the middle of it. <laughs> Jesus says, I'll give you a promise. You want to abide? You want, you want to be fruitful? Abide in me. I'll make you fruitful. Now, as you read the heroes, as you read the lives of people like John Newton, Charles Spurgeon, George Whitfield, Whitfield, you find, though everyone is against them, including the church, you find that they themselves are rejoicing in Christ. They cling to him and their critics generally are forgotten. And they themselves, mm. they're the people you name your children after. So Wilberforce, <laughs> to come back to him, uh, Wilberforce is, uh, uh, I adore him because uh, because here's a guy, it's funny, people now say, we need another Wilberforce. And they assume that the first Wilberforce was extremely 
uh, effective and great a great organizer and was a, a very powerful man. They don't know the original Wilberforce. They don't know that he was considered to be the funniest man in London. They don't mm. know he was chaotically disorganized. He was always late. They could they didn't know he could speak for three hours without notes. They didn't know they don't know that uh, he would he he broke his toe dropping a, a bowling ball on it when he was playing with his children. They don't know that when his when he arrived at his friends' homes, his friends would say his friends' children would say, Oh, Mr. Wilberforce is here. Great. We can play with him. We can't play with him uh, far, but we can play with Mr. Wilberforce. He was great uh, fun. Nice. So if you read his biography by Pollock, it's a brilliant, wonderful biography. But Pollock seems to be bemused. How did this man change everything? <laughs> well, again, you see, though, you can see he was people who knew him said he was always humming a hymn of praise. He was always mm. worshipping. And he himself chastised the, uh, the, the clergyman of his day, saying, he said, my chief objection with the with the uh, the professional churchmen of our day is that they seem to they seem to reduce Christianity into a system of rules and prohibitions and mm. neglect the command to rejoice. What do you say? Isn't that wonderful? If you really appreciate this ministry that we have, if you share our vision and our burden for discipleship, we would love it if you would become a financial partner with us. Uh, we love what we do here at the C.S. Lewis Institute, and we are constantly reminded that we, we couldn't do it without the support of people who are uh, generous in their giving. And um, we, we invite you to become a partner. If you already are a, a financial supporter, thank you so much. If you give on a monthly basis, that's what really helps us the most. If you give occasionally, we ask, well, maybe you could consider um, becoming a regular monthly donor. Uh, this is very often around the time of year that people look at their budgets and say, how do I want to shape that for the following year? Perhaps we could become one of those uh, places where you uh, support on a monthly basis. And if you've never given, um, please join us. Uh, we think there's some really great things that God is doing through us in spite of our weaknesses, but with um, uh, great results all around the world. And it would be wonderful to have you join us in the process. Thanks. Hmm. Oh, man. All right. So we're going to put a bunch of commercials uh, in the show notes here about a couple of the books you've mentioned and about your website and about the the tour of the British Museum. I, you know, I, I, when I was at London, I was looking at different things I could possibly do and, you know, in between these conferences. And I saw the British Museum and I thought, I don't know. There's a bunch of old stuff there, and uh, I've heard that it's probably a lot more walking. Um, and so I, I've never been inside. I've, I've been to London several times. I've never been inside. Um, but then when I took this tour, I thought, oh, now I know how I'm going to do the, the British Museum. I'm going to call Ben Virgo and set this up and join one of his tours. I uh, I can't wait. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be back in the UK in September for some conferences, and um, I hope I can do it. Um well, uh, tell us, uh, let's go in the direction of John Newton for a minute. Here's, here's what I think most people, here's the most that some people know about John Newton. He was a really bad person because he was a captain of a slave ship, and then he got saved, and then he wrote Amazing Grace. There, that's it. Um, um, 
I'm 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 joking, but I have to confess that's pretty much my level. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I you recommended a, a bio of John Newton, and I'm reading it and finding out more and more. Um, he he wrote hundreds of hymns, right, or hundreds of poems yeah. that then yeah. got set to music. Um, but just just go on a little riff for us about John Newton. Well, Newton, I, I love Newton. I read him every day. Interestingly, uh, when m- multiple people in his own day had written great works of literature, had written, had written books which they had hoped would be published, many of them came to him to edit them, which is fascinating because here's a, a guy who was a son of a sailor born in East London, not born uh, in Wales. He was born, uh, uh, he, he, will have, he will not have sounded like a parliamentarian he will not have sounded like he studied at oxford he will have sounded like a sailor very likely and uh, he had been on the seas he had a very interesting and inquiring mind so at one occasion he gets stranded on the west coast of africa and what did he do for his kind of vice well what he liked to do and he loved to spend his time doing was among other wicked things, he loved to study maths. He was fascinated to see how things worked. Now, I don't know if that's only Newton. I do think there was a time, perhaps uh, we can remember it from our childhood, when uh, before there was the internet, people might actually learn stuff. They might actually go and learn and read and, uh, well, I suppose we learn through the internet now, but there was a, there was an inquiring, a, a searching of things out, a visiting of Uh, books. And he used to read Euclid and try and teach himself languages. He got himself Hmm. up to a useful standard of Latin, Hebrew, Greek, and so on. But he himself was a bad guy. He, He was a slave trader. And at that time, that was just one of the very many jobs that a sailor could find themselves doing. If you wanted mm. to work on the seas and his father had been a sailor, his father had been a captain, then that was an alternative. So he ended up working, seeing quite staggering cruelty on slave ships. He describes an instance in which he was, he, he describes being on a longboat on which they, on the west coast of Africa, had just purchased an African woman and uh, the woman came with what John Newton describes as a fine one-year-old child. But at night, the baby was crying. And this was keeping the first mate of the sheep, of, of the, the longboat, awake. And John Newton remembered the first mate threatening the mother. If you do not silence that child, I will silence it. But the baby continued to cry. And the first mate pulled the baby off the mother and threw it over the side of the boat. Mm. This is one of very many, many instances of horror that Newton will have experienced. And then, of course, he describes how the first mate had to deal with the lamentations of the mother. But, of course, she was too valuable to throw overboard herself. So Mm. he saw quite hideous cruelty. But he Mm. himself... As I say, he ended up stranded, essentially, on the west coast of Africa. You see, he had been a bitter-hearted man, and it always came out of a cruel mouth. And so when his captain died on one occasion, he realized the man who will be put instead in charge of the ship is this man who really hates me, and he will sell me to a military ship, and I will die. And so John Newton said, no, I'm not going to go back on the ship, and he stayed on land. But while he was on land there, he became seriously ill and uh, eventually was rescued two years later by a ship going back to England. 
but uh, while he was on that ship on, in March 1748, he was asleep when he was woken by the horrifying sound of water pouring through the cabin of his ship. And uh, someone shouted, the ship is sinking. He climbs up on deck. As he's going up, the captain calls up to him, Mr. Newton, come down here. Bring me your knife. So he didn't go up. He went down. The man who did go up was washed off, was never seen again. Hmm. And Newton spent the night from three in the morning till noon the next day pumping water out of the ship. Yeah. He says that night I did something. He did something out of character. That night in that storm, he prayed. Mm -hmm. And of course, he survived. Now, as a consequence of this, he starts to look into the Bible. And as he looked through the Bible, he didn't just find useful advice. He didn't just find a new philosophy. What he did find was a savior who comes to take the blame for his enemies. And the man who would later write, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, that saved a wretch like me, put his faith in Christ. So he's a, he was a bad guy. But then his, his inquiring mind took him to study theology. He longed to serve, be a, um, serve Christ as a minister of the gospel. He used to go and, is it, and one thing he does have in common with our time is he, he used to go and listen to many preachers. He loved to go and travel across London to go and in one place he'd go and listen to the great George Whitfield and then he'd go across London and go and hear Wesley on the same day or in the same extraordinary time to be in mm. London. But then he, uh, he becomes minister of a church before being invited after 16 years of ministry in Buckinghamshire, he was invited to become minister of a church in the city of London. At that time, it was, he was only the second Bible-believing minister in London at that time. And he mm. served a little church for 28 years. Oh, my. And, uh, yeah. So we, we love to talk to him, talk about him, because apart from anything else, he's a man of great grace, but also his influence through that tiny church was enormous. William Carey, <laughs> Henry Martin, uh, William Cooper, William Wilberforce are only a few of the people whose lives were changed by him. Oh, this is so important to remember because um, a whole lot of us have some level of influence around us and we think, oh, it's not that much. I'm, I'm not the pastor of a church of thousands. I'm not, some, I'm, I'm not even a pastor. Uh, I have this one-on-one -on -one mentorship, you know, that I do through my church or through our fellows program or something. It's like, am I really making any difference? And um, uh, you never really know. You never know what will be done through you long after you're gone from this earth. Um, Newton was a pastor for 28 years in that church after serving 16 years in another church. I'm, I'm just intrigued, Ben. You said you read John Newton every day. What do you read? What, what, what are you feasting on? Well, delightfully, really delightfully, this great and able gospel minister and brilliant writer wrote many letters and you'll find if you just read one of his letters a day or a couple of them a day, you'll find, oh, that's real. That's real food for your soul. He manages to get the gospel and he puts himself back into the frame. He shows you again and again. And as you, know, you probably know, towards the end of his life, he said, these things I know. This is, he's, by now, he's, uh, he's, he's losing his memory and he's lost so many things. He's lost his wife and he's, he's alone. And he says, these two things I know, though, I'm a great sinner. But Christ is a great savior. <laughs> you think, this Amen. is wonderful. This is wonderful. You see, if you read secularly 
people will say now. It's fascinating. If you look up John Newton on Google, there are whole studies written about what a terrible person he was. And mm-hmm. you kind of you want to st- sit there and you look at them and you look at the author and say, so you're saying he's a a, a terrible person. Would you say he's a would you say he's a wretch? <laughs> yeah, that's what he called himself. <laughs> what he called himself. But he said saved. He saved a wretch like me. So I would uh, highly recommend his letters. Oh, nice. Well, this is really delightful. And I, I have to tell you, I, I, I like sitting down listening to you more than walking because uh, the walking was tiring. And you're tall, so your legs are longer and you move fast. Anyway, I'm just being a wise guy. Um, I do need to wrap this up here. And here's where I want to wrap it we up. just got so started. I, uh, well, okay. Um, uh, by the way, when you were saying earlier of how the the Christian presence has shaped history and the people who have been our enemies, they're, they're gone. I remember uh, J.P. Moreland, a philosopher, saying um, there's a reason why people name their children Peter and Paul and they name their dogs Nero and Caesar. Um, <laughs> it's a very funny way to put it. Um, but here's where I want to land this. I, I want to say, so you you conduct these tours, you're walking around, you're you're saying some of the same things. How how have doing the tours shaped you? How how has that experience of telling God's people about these people and these places? How has that um, uh, helped your spiritual growth, your discipleship? Yes, it's a wonderful question, a fascinating question. The way I tend to put it is, is that actually the. I have shaped the tours in that what I have come to understand of the gospel has been has become more and more the pivot of each story. Now, the way I mean what I mean by that is this. The people about whom I talk on the tour, I talk about them as much as I think they want me to talk about them, because the point of each story really is the gospel. So when I'm talking Mm. about William Tyndale, I'm not talking about Tyndale. I'm talking about, you need a Bible. You need to see Jesus. And he wrote Mm. a book and it's here. And and I tell the story of Tyndale and how he longed for people to see that. And as he's about to die at the stake, he says, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. See, as I have come to understand the gospel, I've seen how again and again and again, it, it is exemplified in history. And that has has have had its so it's had a mutual effect in that sense. But in terms of the actual effect on me, it has been of some stimulus and encouragement to see that when one feels, for example, I'm planting a church in among Bangladeshi Muslims in East London, and it's extremely slow. When one reads the letters of, say, a Newton, and he feels like no one's getting it, and so on, but he still is astonished at the love of God in Christ. When I read the the, the, the the journals of Wilberforce and he's saying, oh, I know where, where I near where I should be. When I read the, the, the journals and letters of Whitfield and he's saying, yes, but Jesus is enough. These things, they encourage me. They encourage me. They build me up. They stimulate me. And it just so happens we have a, the, I love, it's a great privilege to be able to read London's churches. Because so many of these blokes are so helpful. John Owen, I read every day as well. What a blessing. He just wants you to see Jesus. He just wants you to see Jesus. And uh, and so that's it helps me as much as I see these guys made it to the other side, just treasuring Christ. And you also see them with their weaknesses. He carried them. He carried them. I'm sorry to say some of these guys were not a great example in some of the things they did. 
but the Lord brought them through. And that's a precious encouragement. Yeah. So that's that's a yeah. short answer. I, I'm sure there's a great deal which I haven't seen, which I'll see one day. If you like this this podcast, um, we would really love it if you'd give us a good rating. Uh, go to wherever you get your podcasts. I know there's so many different places, iTunes, etc. Um, but give, give us a, a rating and let people know. We, we think um, we've got a lot of good resources here that people connect to, and their first start of it is through this podcast or our other podcasts. We have several. Um, but if you'd, be, if you'd be willing to give us a good rating, we'd really appreciate that. Thanks. Well, I, you know, I, every time I delve into church history, I, I get this double appreciation. Uh, the one is we've really messed up a whole lot. I mean, God's people are far from perfect. They, terrible mistakes and divisions and fights and oy. Um, and, and yet then on the other side, look, look at how God has used these wretches um, to spread the gospel. Now, we, I, I can't leave. I can't leave because you just threw out this little thing. I'm planting a church among Bangladeshi Muslims in London. You mentioned that to me when we were together, and, and you told me a little bit about it. But I, I can't let our listeners just let that fly by. Come on, give us a little report. You're, you're, you're what? You're planting a church? Where? In London. Okay, aren't there a lot of churches? Yeah, but of Bangladeshi Muslims. Give us a little short missionary report yeah well we're we're living in what we call a housing estate and uh, it once happened that i told an american lady we live on an estate and she said <laughs> was that inherited she said <laughs> she was thinking it was like downtown abbey or something but no an estate is government housing it's what you would probably call the projects in america mm -hmm, and right. the people around us mostly are bangladeshi and the people either side of where we live here my neighbors don't speak english and the whole uh, situation here is that they, uh, many of them have fled here and fascinatingly they're all convinced however that islam is the answer when we talk to them about islam very few of them knows anything about islam which is very frustrating <laughs> because mm. we are the ones who mm. have to tell them what their whole thing says so that we can say yes but can you see how your whole system requires a savior. You surely see that. <laughs> so we're trying to tell them the gospel. Ah. But we have been here for, we're pushing, we've been on this estate for nearly 13 years and we've been planting for about 12. And uh, we are, uh, we have seen people come and go and it's hard, it's slow. But I'll tell you one thing. Interestingly, our children have grown up seeing that their parents believe this and they've, ah. they've heard us explain it to them, push, pray for it. And now our children, our oldest is 22. Um, uh, uh, we've had seven children. Our first son died when he was a baby. But our oldest now is 22. Youngest is 10. And they're praying. They're, they're seeking the Lord. And uh, my oldest is now preaching for us every month or so. He's doing his theology degree. And uh, mm. we, we are, they are the ones who are then bringing many of their friends. So we now have 20 to 30 people meeting on the, actually meeting on the estate in a community hall. And this Sunday, we have a carol service, which is, yeah, that looks nice, doesn't it? Carols. Actually, what you're doing at a carol service is, here's a big meeting to talk about the incarnation. So, so we're going to preach Jesus to a room full, hopefully, of local people. So yeah, the church is called Victoria Park Community Church, which I thought sounded safe enough. Victoria Park Community Church. And we are meeting uh, in East London. And uh, yeah, you're very welcome to pray for us, Randy. Hmm. <laughs> 
Uh, this is really great. What a what a great uh, ministry ministries plural God has opened up for you, and I'm I'm so very grateful to connect with it. Well, we're going to wrap this up now. Let me just say to our listeners, um, if you got a little uh, uh, a bug there to de- delve into church history, uh, there's quite a few things on our website, the cslewisinstitute.org. Uh, some quite a few biographies we've uh, we collected several short biographies over the years in our publication, Knowing and Doing. So um, it's my prayer and hope that uh, reading some of these things, hearing some of these things will help you grow um, in your love for the Lord. And may all of our resources and all that we do here at the C.S. Lewis Institute help you grow so that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Thanks for joining us. Bless you, Annie. Hey, and if, if I can still say it, I'm so sure. grateful for what you do. I think your approach of questioning and listening to people has been instrumental to what we do. And if I was to, if you came and started to preach to our people, I think they'd say, hang on, he's copying Ben. Because, <laughs> because <laughs> oh, good. I've taken yes. your beautiful uh, example of relationship, asking questions and listening to people so you can actually apply the gospel like a surgeon rather than just throwing a brick from a distance. I think that's been foundational and extremely helpful. So it's a delight to connect with you. Oh, that's a nice that's a nice way to end. Thanks so very, very much. That's encouraging to me. Okay. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bless you. Bye.